Living, he loved me. Dying, he saved me. Buried, he carried my sins far away. Rising, he justified freely forever. And one day, he's coming. Oh, glorious day. Folks, I cried like a baby up here on the front row of that song because I was reminded over once more that my Savior really did love me enough to live here on this earth for me, that he died in my place. Folks, there is nothing greater than the fact that one day we will be with him in glory, and we'll spend eternity there for all of those who call on the name of the Lord and ask for forgiveness of their sin, surrender their lives to Jesus. We will live for all of eternity with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Somebody say amen right there. A couple weeks ago, we began a series um, entitled, What Did You Expect? And it was supposed to be a four-part series, um, but uh, the weather had something to say about that, so we weren't together last Sunday morning. And so between this week and next week, we're kind of pulling together what I was going to do for three weeks, so this may be a really long sermon, okay? Just jump in, hang on. Hey, when I was in second grade, I, w- I went to a private Christian school. It was in Ramsour, North Carolina. It was uh, called Faith Christian School. And I am never, ever, as long as I live, going to forget my teacher that year in second grade. Her name was Mrs. Bates. Mrs. Bates um, is a horrible name for a teacher. And I'll tell you why. Um, it's because it's so easily rememberable. And when you have a teacher that was as strict as Mrs. Bates was, you will never, ever forget her name. I have no idea what her first name was. None whatsoever, but I will never forget Mrs. Bates. She was strict. Now, you think that you had a strict teacher in elementary school, but let me tell you something. You had no teacher compared to Mrs. Bates. You say, well, you make her sound like she's a horrible person. She wasn't a horrible person, okay? But for a seven-year-old boy who um, would rather be outside doing stuff than sitting in a classroom studying and who was prone to daydreaming and prone to playing with the other kids around him, um, Mrs. Bates had a discipline style that was a little bit, uh, I, don't know, I don't know if I want to use the word cruel for a seven-year-old, but okay, yeah, it was kind of cruel, all right? She was, it was in your chair all the time. You don't move around. You don't, you don't, um, you don't talk to anybody else. You can only do that at research, recess, lunchtime, and maybe another time in there with a, with a break, okay? If um, I was sitting in the back of the classroom, which, by the way, why did she put me in the back of the classroom? Okay, that was the first question I had, but... Um, If she wanted me to be real good, she'd put me right up there on the front. But it didn't matter where you were sitting in the classroom. If you were doing anything out of the ordinary, anything that you're not supposed to do, then she would know it, even if she wasn't looking at you. And I'll never forget a couple of instances where she's writing on the blackboard. I know I don't look a day over 19, but I was in elementary school when they were using blackboards. I promise, okay? Um, But uh, she was writing on the blackboard, and I'd be in the back of the classroom and just doing something. I don't even know what it might have been, but... She would say, Kivit Hicks, you get a mark on your heart. And then she would walk over to the bulletin board where there was a red heart with my name on it, and she would take a black marker and she would put a mark on my heart. Okay? Every month, at the beginning of the month, she would replace those hearts, and you would get a nice, clean, fresh heart. But for me and a couple other kids in my class, it wasn't long before there was a mark on my heart again. Now, besides, this, uh, besides the philosophical and the theological implications of having a teacher make a mark on your heart, um, there's a couple of things that I've come to realize 
after, after, after thinking today about Mrs. Bates in second grade years ago, okay? First of all, Mrs. Bates was probably looking out for my best interest, even though I didn't think she was. She probably was. I'll just, I'll just assume that that was the case. Number two, I was probably wrong to think some of the things that I thought about Mrs. Bates back in second grade because they were less than desirable many times. I thought, why in the world did I have to get Mrs. Bates? Why couldn't I have my first grade teacher who was awesome, okay? Um, but then thirdly, Mrs. Bates had expectations of me and I had expectations of Mrs. Bates that were very unrealistic, I thought anyway, and uh, that were not clearly communicated, Maybe she expected me to be this awesome kid who always made A's all the time, and I expected her just to simply give me the A's all the time without doing the work. That's every kid's dream, right? No work, here's an A. Parents are happy, everybody's happy, right? Um, Or maybe she expected me to not flirt with the girl that was sitting in the desk next to me. But let me tell you something, that was a highly um, uh, unrealistic expectation because that was a pretty girl. And so I was going to flirt with the, even in second grade, I was going to flirt with the girl sitting in the desk next to me. Regardless, I had expectations of her and she had expectations of me that were unmet and it led to trouble, a lot of trouble when I was in second grade. We're we're continuing this today, uh, our series of what did you expect? Um, It's a question that you ask after an event. What did you expect, right? For instance, you can easily be asked that question of what did you expect after you've just watched a Christmas Hallmark movie after the same plot is followed as all the other Christmas Hallmark movies you've ever seen in your whole life, okay? I just dug myself a little bit deeper with some of you folks who love your Hallmark movies. Don't send me the nasty emails and the nasty letters later, okay? But what did you expect with the birth of Jesus? What did the people who were living in that time period, what did they expect with the birth of Jesus? Their expectations that people had of Jesus and his birth, and many times they're unrealistic expectations that that go unmet. So that's what we're talking about here in this series. And today we're talking about Herod and the wise men. And what we're going to find is that they had expectations of Jesus that were misguided, they were unrealistic, but before we condemn them for those misguided expectations, we have got to pause and reflect on our own lives because oftentimes, Our political expectations of Jesus are no different than theirs were, okay? But before we dive into our study, I want to go to to the Lord right now and just ask that he bless our time together. So would you bow in, in prayer with me? Our Father, I come to you in this moment, and I know without a doubt that you have worked in my heart with this message. And now, Father, I pray that you work in the hearts of of those within listening uh, a shot of, of my voice, that God, the Holy Spirit is allowed to work to such an extent that what's being said is, is, is not even my own words, but what's being said is from you, and we understand that you want to work in us today. May Jesus be preeminent in our time here. May no other distraction come in that would cause us to sway away from Jesus. We thank you for our worship so far. We thank you for the reminder that you are a God who loves us, and that there is none like Jesus. Now, Father, I pray that you would reinforce that with your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen, amen. Today we're talking about the political expectations that people might have had. I want you to take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2, and I'm going to begin our study portion of our time together this morning by kind of giving us a bird's eye glimpse of the political culture of the time period in which Jesus was born. Now, to do that, you can't start anywhere except with Caesar Augustus. 
with Caesar Augustus. Now, there's no way that you can have a clear understanding of, of, of politics in Jesus' day without talking about Caesar Augustus. Now, I'll probably refer to him as Caesar as we go through this, okay? But Caesar was the ruler of all of the known world at the time in which Jesus was born. In fact, it was widely proclaimed that whatever the boundaries of the world were, those were the boundaries of the Roman Empire. Whatever the boundaries of the world were, those were the boundaries of the Roman Empire. Caesar's original name was Caesar Octavian. But after a long, brutal civil war in which Octavian was declared the victor, a new star appeared in the sky, and he declared that this new star was his murdered father who had ascended to heaven to sit at the right hand of his father God, Zeus. So Caesar argued that because of this, he had a rightful place as being called the son of God. And he changed his name from Caesar Octavian to Caesar Augustus. Now, we don't have a word in our English language that helps us to clearly understand the word Augustus. Okay, but the closest we've got is, is the word venerable. Venerable means uh, commanding respect because of great age or impressive dignity. Okay? In other words, Caesar Augustus is proclaiming with this name change that there was none like him on earth. That there is no one like him on earth. And he's doing so, he's changing his name in this way at the blessing of the Roman Senate. Caesar was worshipped as a god. He was viewed as the savior of mankind. There's temples that are built all over Rome, the Roman Empire, for the worship of Caesar. And all over the Roman Empire, there's plaques proclaiming his greatness. His image was everywhere, much like this, the image that you would see here on the screen. Uh, there wasn't a single person in all of the known world that wouldn't have known what Caesar Augustus looked like. He preached peace to everyone. No more civil war. No more fighting among yourselves. Everyone simply submit to his rule and reign and everything would be just fine. Caesar brought about the Pax Romana. You might, you might have heard of the Pax Romana in, in school. It's the peace of Rome. As a part of this peace, uh, there was no more fighting. There was an infrastructure of roads that were built all throughout the Roman Empire that allowed safe passage for you to go anywhere that you wanted to go. There was, there was these ships that protected you uh, as you came into harbor from pirates Anyone caught stirring up trouble would be shut down immediately, and there was this great sense of peace and security during the days of Caesar. Okay, now uh, we enter into the picture Herod. Herod was the one who carried out what Caesar wanted to do in the region, the area of Palestine. Okay, so where Caesar was the ruler of all of the known world, Herod was the sub-ruler under Caesar over the Palestinians. Herod was half Jew, half Edomite, and so he was not unfamiliar with the area of Palestine. Therefore, he was a perfect fit for this position because he already knew the people. Herod was himself a very resourceful, um, a very strong ruler. Many people believe he was a genius when it came to knowing how to move the region forward in the areas of commerce and technology. Herod actually built a harbor that was 520 acres large. And in order to do so, he had to drain a swamp and he had to rebuild an entire shoreline in order for this to take place. Now, it's said that one time he was traveling from one place to another and he got to the top of a hill and he looked out over this harbor that he had built, which by the way, he named Caesarea after um, Caesar Augustus, kind of a sucking up there to Caesar Augustus. But he looked out over uh, Caesarea, this harbor, and he realized that doesn't look very pleasing. It looks kind of ugly. And so he had the whole thing covered in marble. He's also well known for a stadium that he built. 
Archaeologists uh, uncovered this stadium many years ago, and they were counting the seats, and they stopped counting at 350,000 seats. In fact, they, they stopped counting there, and they believed that the actual number of seats in this stadium was more like four, um, 400 or 450,000 seats in the stadium. Herod was a genius when it came to technology and when it came to understanding how to move things forward. Caesar may have been the ultimate power in all the world, but Herod wasn't far behind in his influence and impact on the political and the social culture of the world at this time. Now, all of this sounds amazing, doesn't it? Right? Right? Great prosperity, great technology, great times to live in, great peace, except it wasn't. It really, it really wasn't. The common person had peace. Everyone throughout the, the Roman Empire had peace. But it was peace Caesar's way. There was no freedom. There was no chance to live and worship the way you wanted to. Caesar was preaching a gospel of good news that centered around himself as the savior of mankind. And for the most part, it seemed like he might be right. He's pulling people out of Poverty. He's pulling the whole world together. Seemed like he might be the savior of all mankind. Remember what he's proclaiming? He said, I am the son of God. That's what he was saying. But there's something that wasn't quite right in Caesar's gospel. There's something missing. It never addressed the real issue that mankind has. Everything else looked great. Everything else was, was, was hunky-dory and going right along, but it never addressed the real issue that mankind has. And that real issue is that people are lost in their sin and they desperately need a perfect sinless Savior to be their sacrifice and die in their place. And without this Savior, they'd be left to spend eternity apart from God. Caesar could not be that Savior. Oh, but he thought he could. He legit thought that he could. He thought that he was everything the people would ever need. And that mindset that Caesar had trickled down into the atmosphere, the political, the social atmosphere of the entire world. Even to the point that everyone believed that Caesar was truly the Savior. Now, we know today that they were wrong. They were missing something that was critically important. And I want to go to God's Word here, and I want to show us here for a few moments what they were missing. So you're in Matthew chapter 1. Let's go, and we're going to start reading in verse 1, and I'm going to stop here and there um, so that we can kind of pull this apart, okay? So Matthew chapter uh, 2, excuse me, Matthew chapter 1, excuse me, Matthew chapter 2, we're going to read in verse 1, all right? Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men came from the east of Jerusalem, or to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Now let's pause here for just a moment, okay? Why is Herod troubled? Why, why is Herod troubled? Well, he's troubled because these men who were obviously of some importance and significance were saying that there was a king of the Jews that had been born. The problem here is that Caesar is king of the world, Right? And Herod is sub-king under, uh, under Caesar over the region, and there is no room for anyone else to rule, because that spot's taken. No one else was needed. No one else was wanted. That's why he was troubled. But before we move on, I want to point out something to you, okay? In, in verse 3 there, it says that Herod was troubled, but Herod wasn't the only one who was troubled. Who else was troubled? 
All of Jerusalem was troubled with him. Word has spread about this king of the Jews that's coming. These, these magi, these wise men are making a big deal about looking for him. You know, there's something that's really confusing about this to me. The people in Jerusalem are troubled about this, right? Aren't these the same people who had been looking for a Jew to come as the Messiah to rule over them? Right? And now when these magi from the east come and proclaim that he has been born, they're not buying it. In fact, they're upset that this may actually be taking place. Folks, listen to me. A false gospel will capture you faster than you could ever imagine because it will promise you health, it will promise you wealth, prosperity, and a life that is better than the one that you currently have. And once it's captured you, it becomes easy to forget the truth because the truth has become relative to whatever you want the truth to be. So I can give you a little bit of money and I'll be healed of this disease? Sure, I can do that. Or, 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 or I allow the ears of my heart to be emotionally lifted through this self-help talk? Sure, I can do that. Give me a five-step system that provides peace in the middle of my heartache? Sure, sign me up for that. A false gospel is going to rob you, though, of closeness and unity with God because it's going to fill you with a sense of comfort that is found not in God, but it's found in yourself. The whole population of Jerusalem has fallen prey to this false gospel of Caesar, and they are deaf to the actual working of God in their midst. God himself has shown up into the picture, and they're deaf to it. They don't see it because they're so blinded by the gospel of Caesar. They're hearing that the king of the Jews has come and they're troubled because it might interrupt the, the sense of peace and the sense of hope that they built for themselves. Even though they may know at their core that it is a false sense of that hope and peace. They're blinded to it. Verse 5, excuse me, verse 4. What does Herod do? He's troubled. All of Jerusalem is troubled. Verse 4, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now, I want you to understand something about what we're reading here, okay? Herod doesn't deny the king of the Jews is coming, nor does he downplay it at all. It's almost like he embraces it. I believe that Herod had full understanding that he's dealing with a real threat right here in the birth of this king of the Jews. Okay, verse 7. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. In other words, when did you first see this star? How old might this baby be? Verse 8. He sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Now, why would a man, arguably the second most powerful man in all the world, want to worship a king who is projected to take his place? I'll give you a hint, okay? He doesn't. He doesn't want to. He's trying to pull a fast one on these, on these wise men. Now, we today, we look at this story and we go, why would he try to, 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 to do that to these wise men, right? These are wise guys. They shouldn't be fooled by this. But what we find in verse 9 is that they listen to the king. They listen to the king. They, they didn't just hear the king or kind of shrug off what he was saying. No, they listened to him and believed him when he said he wanted to go worship this new king of the Jews. All right, let's continue the story. Verse 9. 
After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, and frankincense, and myrrh. Right in the middle of this bizarre story about wise men coming from a long way away to worship a king that's just been born, comes a gold mine of application for us today. Right here in the middle of the story, these men, perhaps some of the greatest minds in the world, men who had likely had, had great influence and power themselves, what do they do? They fall down and they worship. Folks, listen, if these great men of influence were willing to humble themselves and worship, why would we ever refuse to do the same thing? Why would we ever refuse to do the same thing? If these men who had no idea of the actual significance of this baby, that he was the son of God, if they were willing to worship him in this way, then how much more should we be willing to proclaim Jesus and to worship him alone as our Savior and Redeemer? All right, this king, Jesus, is worthy of our worship and praise. All right, let's continue reading. Verse 12, we're going to read the rest of the story. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. And when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. And remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under. According to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what, the, what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. What a sad, tragic end of this story. I've got two kids, ages two and under. For no reason at all. Herod, in his power and his influence, just said, do it. And they killed every child to and under. Herod is so caught up in what is going to make him look good in front of Caesar and what's going to protect him in his position. He's willing to do even the most cruel of things to protect it. There's a couple of things I want for us to learn about the expectations that there were of rulers in Jesus' day. Number one, it was all about them and their kingdom. All about them and their kingdom. What the ruler wanted, the ruler got, no matter what that was. If it benefited him personally, it was allowed. If it benefited the glory and the majesty of the kingdom, then it was permissible, no matter what it was. Number two, no humility was needed. This king didn't need to have any, any humility. There seemed to be no reason for them to serve the people in humility. In fact, to humble oneself as a king was to show weakness, and who would want a weak king? Number three, sacrifices were made only at the lowest level of the kingdom. The king didn't make sacrifices. The peasants did. They paid the taxes. They fought the wars. They worked the fields. They gave up the most for the sake of the kingdom. That was not the king's role. 
His role was to direct how the sacrifices were to take place, not make the sacrifice himself. But then comes a king. Y'all listen, here comes a king who is completely different from any other king the world has ever known. This was a king who never made much ado about himself. He was always pointing to his father, always. This was a king who was humble. He's always putting other people ahead of himself. This is a king who made sacrifices, even to the point of sacrificing his own physical body to the point of death. This is a king unlike any other. No one, especially not Herod or the wise men, would have expected Jesus to live and, and, and act in the way that he did. No one would have. Now, I want to jump ahead in Jesus' life, okay? We're at the beginning of Jesus' life here in Matthew chapter 2. Take your Bibles and go to John chapter 18. We'll be at the end of Jesus' life. This is after Jesus has been arrested and he's about to die. Jesus is standing in front of a man by the name of Pontius Pilate. Okay, Pilate is what is known as a prefect, similar to a governor with a few differences. Pilate is the prefect for the Roman Empire, for the region of Judea, here at the time of Jesus' trial and death. Now, we're in John 18. We're going to pick up reading in verse 33. Remember, Jesus arrested, standing before Pilate. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priest have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king? Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And I love what Pilate says to him. Pilate says, what is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Now before I spend much time here, I want you to jump down to chapter 19, verse 15, okay? Right there in, chapter, in John, 19, verse 15. Pilate with the Jews again. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest, okay, get this, the chief priest, the religious leaders of the day, the ones who should have known better, here's what they say, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. We have no king but Caesar. Folks, if there was ever a picture of a people who were captivated by the false gospel that Caesar provided, right there it is. We have no king but Caesar. I don't want to spend much time here, but please allow me to say this. That God places people in positions of leadership, of groups, of populations all over the earth. But never, ever should a leader become a substitute for the Savior. Ever. He was right there. The Messiah was right there that they had been longing for for hundreds of years is right in front of their faces. And all they could see was the absence of war, the promise of prosperity, and the supposed safety that Caesar could provide. And they turned their back on the Son of God. 
Folks, as Christians, may we never get so caught up in devotion to the politician that we miss the beauty of the Savior. A little while ago, I told you about some expectations of a ruler that Herod and the wise men would have had. The people of the day, what kind of expectations of a ruler would they have? But here in John 18 and 19, we find a completely different type of ruler. Number one, we find that Jesus was kingdom-focused. Jesus, as the king of the Jews, was kingdom-focused. The expectation of Herod and the wise men was that Jesus was going to become the literal king of the Jews during his time on earth. They thought he was going to reign from a literal throne and that he would disrupt the peace that had been established by Caesar. But Jesus here in John 18 is clear that his kingdom is not of this world, and he proclaimed to all the world that he came not to rule over mankind in a literal sense, but he came so that we could have life and have it abundantly. That is why Jesus came. That's what he told Pilate. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. In other words, there is something much greater out there that my father has for me. I have a responsibility that you know nothing of. Number two, Jesus was humbly purposeful. Jesus was humbly purposeful. God sent Jesus to earth for a purpose. And he knew what that purpose was. Jesus did. And there was nothing that could pull him away from it. At any point, Jesus had the power to do whatever he wanted because he's God, right? He, he, he was no less God as a man here on earth. He could have wiped out the entire group of people who were screaming out, crucify him, and he didn't. Jesus was humbly purposeful. But then number three, Jesus was the true and greater Caesar. Jesus was the true and greater Caesar. Folks, these people are wrapped up in the greatness of Caesar, Yet they completely miss that there's something much greater right in front of their faces. Right? Caesar's flashy, okay? Jesus is not flashy. Caesar was a man who had anything and everything he wanted or needed. He lived a life of royal luxury. Jesus was born in a stable and he spent his entire life as a poor man who didn't always know where his next meal was going to come from. Okay? Caesar's fame was endless. There was no point in the entire known earth at that time that did not know the name of Caesar. Jesus' fame, on the other hand, was limited to a small area of the Roman Empire. He was known to a relatively few people compared to Caesar. Caesar's power and influence were seemingly infinite. If he wanted land, he took it. If he wanted servants, he took them. Whatever Caesar said became law. Jesus, on the other hand, came across as meek and humble, not weak, but nothing like the powerhouse of royal personality and influence that Caesar had. Caesar himself declared to be God, to be the son of God. He was worshiped and he was adored as the savior of the world. But this worship only lasted as long as Caesar was alive because on his death, he was placed in the ground and he stayed there. Jesus may not have been in the ground. Jesus, excuse me, may not have been worshipped on this earth as Caesar was, but the worship of the living, resurrected Son of God that is taking place right now from the angels in heaven and the saints on earth is overpowering and it is eternal. It is never ending because he is worthy of being worshipped. Folks, Caesar seemed to bring complete peace to the world. People seemed to be happy, but that peace was temporary and doomed for failure from its inception. Jesus, on the other hand, brings peace that fills the heart of the believer with joy and that holds the believer tightly in his safe arms forever. According to human standards, Jesus was pathetic as a king. I mean, he was pathetic. He had no earthly power. He had no throne to sit on. He had no military to enforce laws and to conquer kingdoms. He didn't have any of those things. 
Today, however, get this, there is nothing left of Caesar's empire except some great stories in history books. Nothing. But we are gathered here this morning as a part of a Jesus movement that includes millions upon millions of people who proclaim Jesus as the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. Folks, listen, angels and wise men and shepherds came to worship this humble king and to, and to give him praise as the Messiah, as the son of the living God. And today we do the same thing. We offer praise to Jesus because he forever reigns as the king of kings and the Lord of lords. There is nobody like him at all, anywhere. There is no political power that supersedes him. Caesar does not compare with him. Herod couldn't kill him. Pilate and the Pharisees couldn't keep him in the grave. There is no earthly power that can overcome Jesus. So here's a question for us this morning. Why would we attempt to put anything in the place of Jesus? If the strength and the magnitude of the earthly political scene is overshadowed by the greatness of our Savior, why would we not put him first in our lives? I don't know what your expectations of Jesus may be, but I can tell you that if they are anything more than the very simplistic reality that you need a Savior for your soul and that Jesus is that Savior, then you have an unrealistic expectation of Jesus. Here's three things for you to take away this morning. Number one, stop looking to earthly Caesars to provide something that can only come from Jesus. Stop looking to the government or an influential member of society to bring you salvation of any kind. Salvation can only come from a relationship with Jesus. In fact, in Acts chapter 4, we read that there is no other name given among men under heaven by which we must be saved. Only by the name of Jesus. Number two, stop expecting Jesus to be the political savior you've been hoping for so that your life will be easier. That's not Jesus. That's not Jesus. Oftentimes we expect our physical lives to be automatically easier because we have a relationship with Jesus. That's one of the most unbiblical thought processes a person can have. Jesus' purpose in coming was to bring about abundant life. But he was also clear to, to his followers that they would not have an easy time of it. In fact, he said that it would be very difficult for them. Number three, we had two stops. Here's a do, okay? Do lean into Jesus as your Savior and worship him with your whole life, not just part of it. With your whole life, not just part of it. Folks, he is far more worthy of praise and worship than any other person or being in this world. So let us as his followers and as people who love him, worship him alone with everything. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? What have you set up in your life as a savior besides Jesus? Could be a person, could be a thing, could be possessions. But what have you set up in your life as a savior? I'd like to argue this morning that there is nothing in this world that compares with Jesus. And I would like to tell you that anything less than complete devotion to him 
is doing an injustice to Jesus. I want to encourage every single one of you here this morning to take a reflective look at your life. Refocus your mind, your heart, your life on Jesus. This Christmas season is a time that's great because we get to celebrate the coming of our Savior and we get to do it with family and friends and have a great time. But all of that means nothing if Jesus is not first. So take the time now, maybe this afternoon, maybe this week, next day or so, to realign your life with Jesus because he alone is worthy of your worship. Our Father, thank you for our time here in your word. May you take it and may you sharpen us to be better followers of Jesus, to be more committed followers of Jesus, to live in the freedom of the gospel. There is none like you, God. We love you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.